Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting Lockstella Saga on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And, if and you're Andy tried to take a sip out of his beer while I was introducing the podcast. I did, but I got done with my sip as I, it was time for me to come in. Because so. you're a pro. It's all about timing. <laughs> but what I was trying to say is, I'm Andy. And yes. if you are joining us for the first time, well, don't. Why? Well, this is our ninth episode on Lockstella Saga, so... Ah. What I would recommend is you stop now, go back into the archive a little ways, and at least start at the beginning of this saga, if not all the way back to the beginning. Still, there's a nice way to say that. Please stop. Better. And yes, we are well into the saga at this point. We've gone all the way from the settlement of Iceland in the late 9th century up to the turn of the millennium and the conversion of Northern Europe to Christianity. Whether they liked it or not. Yeah, because we're also up to the reign of Olaf Tryggvason in Norway. Olaf has an unusual personal spin on spreading the good word about Jesus. It mm-hmm. often involves torture. Yes, and molten gold. <laughs> Blindings and kidnappings, you know. Yeah, well, fortunately uh, fortunately for the world, he's the very last person in history to commit atrocities in the name of religion. I see we're starting with a bit of sarcasm today. Yeah, so we're not just twiddling our thumbs in the year 1000. No, no. We are also following the story of three young Icelanders. That is, Gudrun Olsvig's daughter... Kjartan Olafsson and Botley Thorlikson. That's right. And to catch you up on where the three of them have got to, it's time to turn back the clock and remember... Last time on Saga Thing! The open seas call and young Kjartan Olafsson answers. Despite the angry objections of Kjartan's paramour Gudrun, Kjartan and his best buddy Botley buy a half share in Kaf Asgerson's ship to Norway. But when they arrive, they find a changed country, with Olaf Tryggvason large and in charge, and intent on converting all of Northern Europe to Christianity. John, I have new headphones, and it doesn't make sense to put my hand by my ear anymore. It doesn't matter. It never made sense in the first place. (laughs) I'm not sure what to do with myself. (laughs) The pagan Kjartan and Botley refuse to convert, and are forbidden from sailing away, trapping them in Olaf's new and improved Norway. And after a couple of brushes with the king, Kjartan determines that he'd rather subvert than convert, and plots to roast the king in a hall burning. But Olaf has his eyes and ears everywhere, and thwarts the plot before it can really get cooking. Impressed with the king's merciful treatment, the Foster brothers eventually give in and take the plunge, accepting baptism and allegiance to Olaf as a package deal. But no deal with Olaf comes without strings attached, and Kjartan finds himself part of a group of young Icelandic aristocrats kept in Norway as hostages to force Iceland's conversion. But Botley, son of a disgraced nobody, is free to flee, and does so. Returning to Iceland alone, he wastes no time before visiting Gudrun, and he brings two surprises with him. The first is that Kjartan's been enjoying alone time with Olaf Tryggvason's sister Ingibjörg. The second is a proposal of marriage to his best friend's girl. Gudrun tries to 86 the amorous Botley, but her father leaps at the chance for a wealthy son-in-law. The marriage goes ahead that autumn, but Gudrun makes no secret in the winter of her discontent. Meanwhile, Kjartan is still watching both the tides and the king, hoping for a chance to return home. But the Iceland awaiting Kjartan's return holds more surprises than his would-be fiancé's marriage. The conversion has come to Iceland, and nothing will be the same. How will our heroes adjust to the new rules of their new faith? How will Kjartan respond to Botley's betrayal? And what's all this about a headdress? Follow the adventure as we tackle Laxdala Saga, chapters 43 to 46.
Mm-hmm. So, we left off the last episode with the news of Iceland's conversion to Christianity, right? Yeah, and in most sagas, that would be the lead. But in this story, the conversion is mostly background noise compared to Botley telling on Kjartan for being friendly with King Olaf's sister. And after that, marrying Gudrun while Kjartan's back in Norway. So far, so warrior poet saga, huh? Mm-hmm. This is pace for pace the plot of Bjorn the Heaterdal Champion saga. Even down to the friend who lies about the protagonist and marries the love interest. Yeah, but one of the distinct differences between this story and the warrior poet saga romances is that Gudrun is no prize to be won and lost. As opposed to Odni Eilkandl, the love interest in Bjorn's saga, right? It kind of. I mean, taking nothing away from Odni, she's just not as dynamic a figure as Gudrun. Gudrun hey. objects to... Ma- well, she... I mean, I'm sorry, but... Gudrun objects to marrying anyone else while Kjartan was alive, and she rejects Botley. But when she learns that Kjartan has been playing longhouse with the Princess Ingebjörg, she drops her objection to the marriage, essentially turning her future into a weapon to hurt Kjartan. Mm-hmm. But that's not the same as being excited about marrying Botley. Not at no. all. Uh, Gudrun's not really best pleased with him, if we're being honest. He's definitely what we would call silver medal material in her eyes. <laughs> and she's not bothering to hide her feelings. So their wedded life is something less than blissful initially. Yeah. I mean, to make to do justice to Odney, uh, she also makes Thord's life difficult when she learns about his lies. Mm. Uh, she's just not given the same narrative space to exist in that Gudrun has. Okay. But let's circle back to that conversion thing. Mm-hmm. The entire conversion narrative in the last few chapters, it's been something out of the ordinary for the sagas. Because of Olaf. Well, mostly, Olaf's either a very complicated figure or an inconsistently written one, which we talked about last time. Yeah, I mean, in general, the story of conversion in this saga, I think it tries to conform to the fundamentals of the story told in other sagas. But the figures at the center act in ways that seem disconnected from the rest of the narrative. Sure, like uh, Kjartan suddenly deciding to kill the king with a hall burning. Mm -hmm. uh, Or Olaf making a huge show of patience while getting Kjartan and Boltley to convert. But then lashing out angrily at others when Iceland resists Christianity. Yeah, I mean, the sequence of events corresponds roughly to the versions in Christni Saga or in Ari the Learned's history. But the foregrounded story of Olaf and the Icelandic ship's crews seems to operate on a completely different wavelength. Well, I mean, this is why we spent the last episode summonsing Olaf, because it's fair, complicated. Fair. Uh, but we really barely scratched the surface of what there is to say about him. Yeah. Uh, the kings of Norway who reigned during pivotal moments in Iceland's history, uh, Harald Fairhair and Olaf, are probably top two. They're clay in the hands of the authors. Right? They can be whatever the narrative needs them to be. It's just that usually they aren't being reshaped multiple times in the same text. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, so it's time to get to the central plot line of this entire saga, the, the tragic love triangle that will ruin the lives of almost everyone involved. Yeah, but it's also, well... There's also a second love story in the episode. Oh, there is, yeah. And the story of a beautiful headdress. I say this episode because, um, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's also, well, there's also a second love story in this episode. There is, yeah. Uh, and the story of a beautiful headdress. And the headdress, sure. This part of the saga, I think, really runs like clockwork. Well, I'm excited to finally be here. So let's go, John. No shilly-shallying. Onward. Yes, fine. I shall neither shilly nor shally. We're off. Part 29. Headdressed for the occasion. Okay. Well, 
The conversion of Iceland may not be front and center in this saga, but it, it's still big news. And as soon as sailing season starts the following spring, King Olaf's agents return to Norway with the good news that Christianity has claimed another people. Oh, that's interesting. What is the phrasing? Well, yeah, I mean, different stories place the conversion of Iceland in different years. Mm -hmm. Even historians don't agree whether the conversion of Iceland took place in 999 or in 1000. Right. We talked about this in the conversion episodes where we decided the year 1000 is uh, slightly more likely. Uh, yeah, well, that's what uh, Ari the Learned wrote, probably. Well, no, 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 we're not going to start that again. The point well, is that we decided to use 1000 AD as our date. Right. Yeah. But this saga is definitely putting the conversion in 999. It has mm -hmm. to be because we know something that Olaf doesn't. Well, I mean, he's a composite literary figure, so it's no, not no, hard no. to know. Things. Don't, don't lose the point here, John. Okay. We know that Olaf Tryggvason is going to get involved in an extremely unfortunate naval battle at Svolder in the year 1000. Yeah, but it's still possible we're just getting turned around by Ari's choice of calendar, and that the year in question stretches from one summer to another. But mm. let's go with it. Either way, now it's 1000, and <laughs> Olaf's on borrowed time. But he doesn't know that. No. And meanwhile, if Kjartan's a hostage... Uh, well, at least he's a willing hostage. Well, he, he is. Yes, he is. I know this. But Olaf's been doing his best to keep him a happy hostage, at least. Uh, among other things, he gives Carton an entire suit of scarlet clothes, which Carton is going to spend a lot of time wearing from this mm -hmm. point on. So, one day, while Carton is swanning around the place in his red suit, ah. word arrives of the recent success in Iceland. Mm. Olaf is delighted with this news, and he immediately announces that his Icelandic guests... That is, the hostages are mm -hmm. free to stay or to leave or go anywhere they want. Well, not all the hostages. Well, not because, all the hostages. Yeah, because Kjartan is elected a spokesman for the Icelandic hostages, and he clearly wants to hit the road. <laughs> yes. Thank you for everything, and we will be heading for Iceland this very summer. Hmm. I don't intend to go back on my word, Kjartan, but I didn't actually mean you. <laughs> I like to think that you have dwelt here more in amity than detention. I I wish that you... Well, I mean, let's be honest. They both know that's not true. Uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, Kjartan knows that it's not true, definitely. <laughs> I wish that you didn't want to go back to Iceland, because I think I can offer you opportunities here far beyond what awaits you back at home. So he's dropping pretty heavy hints here. Yeah. Uh, we might as well just say right now that Butley's story about Kjartan and the King's sister, it's not wholly fabricated. They have been getting along very well, and Olaf's speech is tantamount to offering his approval of a wedding between them. Mm -hmm. Which is a big claim. Mm -hmm. Just how well have these two been getting along? Is this the second love story that we hinted at earlier? I mean, let's, uh, let's fast forward to Kjartan's departure and see why, don't we? All right. Well... When the time comes to leave, Kjartan makes time to visit the king's sister before setting off. Mm -hmm. And Ingebjörg is obviously not happy with him for leaving. You know, this is kind of a pattern for Kjartan. Uh, this yeah. is how he left things with Gudrun back in Iceland. He just does That's this. Right. Well, I think we've seen a lot of male characters in the sagas disappoint yes. female characters with exactly That's this kind of thing. <laughs> That's entirely fair. But but actually, this one goes a little bit better than last time. I mean, Kjartan. it couldn't go worse. <laughs> Ingeborg gives him a beautiful headdress decorated with gold filigree and says it's a gift for his beloved Gudrun. You are to give it to her 
as a wedding present, so that the Icelandic women can know that the woman you have consorted with here in Norway is hardly the descendant of slaves. Now, I won't see you off, but farewell and Godspeed. And we can draw a discreet curtain over the rest of their parting. A discreet curtain, you say? Mm-hmm. That, that makes it sound kind of like they're about to put on some Marvin Gaye and light some candles. I don't think that's how it went. I, look, I can't help where your mind goes, and I can't help what you think counts as seduction. <laughs> I think uh, curtains are always involved in seduction, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, hey, <laughs> it works for you. Uh, so you want to talk about this headdress thing at all? Actually, I have some thoughts on that, but not right this second. We're, oh. we're finally getting the story underway. I don't want to break the flow. Dude, uh, we, we can talk we about the shots. Yeah, I know, but I want to talk about the shots that Ingebjörg is getting in on Kjartan here. Okay. The bit about letting people know that his Nor- Norwegian Gumar isn't a descendant of slaves, that's a dagger right to Kjartan's ribs. The Gumar, huh? Uh, mistress. Lady friend. Maron. Um So <laughs> the, the dig at Kjartan, yeah. the descendant of slaves thing, is because of his grandmother. Absolutely. Yeah. Kjartan is the son of Olaf Peacock, who is the son of Melkorka, an Irish slave. So Ingeborg isn't just sending a message to Icelanders in general. She's specifically taking a shot at Kjartan and his parentage. At mm. least, I mean, we have to assume she is. I mean, it does sound that way. But on the other on the other hand, uh, Melkorka is not just a slave woman. She's also the daughter of an Irish king, the King Mirkjartan. I don't know if that's really the knockout blow Ingeborg was trying for. I mean, it, it could be a slur against the Icelandic people as a whole, but I'm not sure no, about that. That that actually that tracks actually. Um, anyway, the whole episode really we can read as an analog. I mean, you can't do that. You can't just read what? something as an analog. Full stop. Come on. I can if I want. What is this? Some kind of monastery? No, <laughs> it has to be an analog of something. Well, no, I'm I'm going to get to that. This is the this is the same story that we're told about Kurt Harrison in Njalsaga. I mean, I'm not going to say which part because I know exactly. Like, I've been thinking that the whole. I've been thinking this the whole time, John. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's it's it's. He's about to leave. So Hrut is about to leave Norway after spending a long time with a woman in the royal family. Yeah. She makes a comment about him having a woman waiting for him in Iceland, and then gives him something that will disrupt his relationship. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Only sort of there. She's giving him a headdress and wishing him a safe trip. That's a far cry from good old mother of kings cursing Hrut with a magically swollen genitals. But it is no, a I, gift. I know, I know. Uh, it is a gift. Uh, uh, magically induced priapism isn't exactly the same thing, but the <laughs> no. gist is the same. The you can put both on your head if you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And as we'll see, this this headdress is going to cause even more trouble than uh, Hrut's uh, gentleman's complaint. <laughs> All right. So Hrut's got stiff competition as a wooer of Norwegian royalty. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, so obviously, this isn't the second love story. Well, not a happy one anyway. Well, the thing is, we, al- we also have to read this relationship in light of Gudrun's response to it. We were told last time that she was quietly furious or quietly something about the news mm. when Baltly brought it to her. Because we get her reaction first and the interaction between these two second, it's more likely to strike a reader as a lapse or maybe a betrayal on Carton's part. Yeah, more of a lapse, I think. If he betrayed Gudrun, he did it when he left Iceland and refused to take her with him. This is all just backstabby icing on the betrayal cake. <laughs> or... I mean, maybe he just likes hanging out with royalty. He does seem impressed by it. Yeah. Uh, so after he leaves Ingebjörg, 
Uh, Kjartan and Kalf get their ship set to sail, and before they go, Olaf visits him and gives Kjartan a gift. A sword, which Kjartan will somewhat unimaginatively call King's Gift from this point mm. forward. Yeah, there are a lot of weapons in the sagas called Kulningsnauter, King's mm. Gift, or Trophy of the King. I mean, there are multiple swords of that name just in this saga. Yeah, it's not the most creative name, but uh, you can see why a warrior would want to make sure everyone knew who gave them the shiny new sword with a jeweled scabbard. Yeah, and it is a name for the sword. It's not just a descriptor. Uh, Elizabeth Torfing and Will Beale have both written in support of taking King's Gift as a name. Oh, and Will for Beale. me, yeah, yeah, our, our friend Will Beale, friend of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, at least, it just fits in with the practice of naming weapons that we find all over the sagas. Right? It's just that it's a very common name for a weapon, as opposed yeah. to something a little bit more creative like Butley's sword Legbiter, or the famous sword Skolfnung that we'll see later in the saga. Can you imagine uh, you have to check your weapons when you come into the local tavern, and right. uh, you go back and you're like, uh, they say, oh, what sword is yours? Um, I, mine is King's Gift. If you could just fetch me Could you me be more King, specific, please? King's Gift. No, but King's <laughs> Gift is, it's a King's Gift. It's covered it's, in jewels. Which, it's very pretty. King? It's got gold inlay. Um, his name's Olaf. <laughs> Could you be more specific, please? <laughs> yeah. So the point is, there's a lot of King's Gifts rolling around out there. And a lot of but, Olafs. <laughs> yeah. But like I said, this one is, like all the other King's Gifts, rather pretty. It's got gold inlay and all kinds of nice stuff on it. But more importantly, John, it's got a little of that old pagan magic built in. Ah. Olaf tells him, carry this sword with you always, for I predict that no weapon will ever wound you. While you bear this sword. You know, we really should never tired that foretelling sound effect. I mean, this is an interesting one, though. Because up to now, every prediction has been heading the same way. This is the first time we've had a prediction that there might be a way out of his doom for Kjartan. Yeah, but of course, it's not that simple. Uh, Olaf stays at the shore to watch the Icelanders sail away. And as they leave, Olaf says under his breath, Great is the worth of Kjartan and his kinsmen, but it will be difficult to alter the fate that awaits them. Everyone's seeing the future in this saga. Well, at least Olaf's trying to change it. Yeah. Uh, a sword of magical protection is a pretty good gift. It is. Uh, of course, he also keeps dressing Kjartan in red shirts, which is maybe a less promising sign. <laughs> well, <laughs> Kjartan may be coming from Norway, but he's not a Norwegian companion. No, he's a Norwegian's companion. Uh, but thanks for teeing that up for me. You're welcome. I was sipping untimely there. Sorry. <laughs> a little victory sip for that one. Yeah. <laughs> now, the actual voyage goes smoothly. And Kjartan and Kalf, they arrive in Iceland a few days later. Word goes out quickly that Kjartan has finally returned. And his father, Olaf Peacock, rides out immediately to meet with him. And they have an emotional reunion. It's quite nice. And mm-hmm. Kjartan agrees to spend the winter at Olaf's farm once he's completed his business with the ship. What? No one cares that poor Kalf is home? Is he chopped liver? No, no. I mean, Kalf's father, Oscar uh, Scatterbrain, he comes to the ship a little bit later. And he brings a daughter, Kalf's sister, Hrepna. And as it happens, Kjartan's sister, Thurid, and her husband, Guthman Solmundersen, visit the ship the same day. But Kalf's sister, Hrepna, doesn't bring a husband. Because guess what, Johnny? She's single. <coughs> Sorry, uh... Got a plot point stuck in my throat there. Mm-hmm. I says, I says, John, Hrepna's single. Single is she? She's is she, single. Is she one among the single ladies? She is. She's 
She's one of all the single ladies. When, when someone yells, all the single ladies, Frepna stands up. She puts her finger up and she says, <laughs> I'm, I am here. That would be me. <laughs> so in the time between Olaf's visit and Ausgers, Kjartan learns about Botli and Guthrun getting married. Oops. He doesn't say anything about it, which is a relief to people who had been dreading his reaction when he would find out. Yeah, which honestly just means they don't know Kjartan like we do. What do you mean? You know, old burn the king in his own house, Kjartan. <laughs> well, uh, he just threatens. Old wait until dark and then attempt regicide, Kjartan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just because you don't see him getting upset doesn't mean that other Kjartan isn't silently promising to feed his beloved flames soon. Well, the evil impulses of other Kjartan notwithstanding. Uh, Shadow Kjartan. Uh, everyone's just relieved that he's not howling for Boltley's head. Instead, he and Kalf have to busy themselves with battening down the ship due to some high winds, and as they're going outside, they invite their sisters to go through the ship's cargo and take their pick of any of the goods. But when Kalf comes back into the ship a little bit later, he sees his sister Hrepna putting on the headdress while Thurid tells her how good she looks in it. Hmm. So this is the headdress that Ingebjörg sent as a wedding gift for Kjartan and Gudrun. Yes. A little awkward. Mm-hmm. So Kalf sees this, and he immediately snaps at her to take it off. You found the one good thing on board that isn't both of ours to give. Yeah, but Kjartan is coming in right behind him and enters the hold before Hrepna can react. He says there's no harm done, and then he looks her over for a moment. I think you said she says there's no harm done, but... Oh, sorry. He says there's no harm done, and then he looks her over for a long moment. To my mind, the headdress suits you quite well. I think the best thing would be for me to keep both the headdress and the lovely head it rests on. Man, other Kjartan has some weird stuff going on. No, I, I, I know. He means it as a compliment. It just sounds like he's threatening to decapitate her. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, but this, this is the promised second love story. Nope. Or at least not yet. Hmm. So Hrepna understands that he's awkwardly trying to propose to her. Mm-hmm. Kind of out of the blue. She's never met this guy before, but right. whatever. <laughs> uh, but it's it's really out of nowhere, you know. So she stops for a second and says, Well, most people would expect you to take a bit more time in choosing a wife and to get the wife you choose. I think it matters little which woman I marry, but I do not intend to remain a suitor for long. Which, if you're keeping score at home, is the second slightly off-putting way he's proposed to her in the last 30 seconds. <laughs> And we can gauge how well that's going for him by her reaction. She simply takes the headdress off, <laughs> hands it to Kjartan, and turns away without saying a word. Yeah, other Kjartan is not a ladies' man. No, he is not. Part 30. If you liked it, then you should have put a headdress on it. <laughs> so... We can skip over a few bits here. Uh, The upshot is that Kjartan and Kalf do very well in profits from their cargo and end their partnership as close friends. And possible brothers-in-law. No reports on that yet. Kjartan spends most of the rest of the year staying at his sister's farm up north, which is also a convenient way of avoiding meeting with Butley and Gudrun. Meanwhile, Gudrun offers a few choice words to Butley. Mm Mm-hmm. She's of the opinion that Botley lied to her about Kjartan's situation. Which, I mean, kinda. Eh, debatable. Besides, Kjartan and Gudrun were on a break. <laughs> a multi-year break! <laughs> yeah, thank you, Ross. Uh, from a relationship that never really existed. 
Nevertheless, Boatley insists. I told you only what I knew as the truth at the time. Which sounds pretty weasely. Yeah. Uh, Edgar's not buying it. So there's a bit of tension at their farm for a while. Yeah, and that tension actually carries on until the Yule celebrations. Now, despite the problems between their kids, Olaf Peacock and Gudrun's father, Oswif, have remained close friends. And they have a tradition of taking turns hosting one another for the holidays. This year, it's Oswif's turn to host, and Olaf wants Kjartan to come along and show that there are no hard feelings. Ah, but there are. There are extremely hard feelings. There there are adamantium feelings. Uh, Of course there are. But this is Olaf. Uh, This is who he is, right? He's always been committed to peace in his time. Uh, Remember, this is the same guy who stopped Hrut from getting revenge for the death of his son so as to keep peace in the clan. He's not going to stand by while a broken, non-existent engagement drives a wedge between his son and his foster son slash nephew. He Mm -hmm. tells Kjartan, I want you to avoid resentments where kinsmen are concerned. Yeah, I mean, that's basically Olaf's personal motto. Yeah, uh, what would that be? uh, Convertat maxillum alterum or something? Uh, Sure. Um, (laughs) It's also possible (laughs) to read this as Olaf being happy about his son being free of an attachment to Gudrun. Mm -hmm. He may be friends with her father, but remember that he had a bad feeling about the attraction between Kjartan and Gudrun. This could be a way out. Right. Well, either way, Olaf wants Kjartan to attend the feast. Uh, Kjartan says he'd rather stay home and keep an eye on the farm, but he eventually agrees to go along. And when they arrive at Oz's property, Butley and all the Ozlesons, all Gudrun's brothers, are there to greet him. Mm. And Kjartan's giving them something to see. Oh, yes. He's put on the entire scarlet suit that King Olaf gave him, and he's got the sword King's Gift at his hip. And he's also bringing a gold inlaid spear. Oh, and he's bringing along about 20 friends, and all of them are also dressed in bright colors. He is the very model of a successful young Icelander. I think that the the, the, the it doesn't quite work. No, it doesn't well, scan, but no. No, but uh, he is a walking eyesore yes. if you want to look at it this way. Uh, but uh, maybe that's redundant. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some overlap on the Venn diagram there between uh, successful young Icelander and uh, walking eyesore. Uh, yeah. So Botley drinks in this spectacle for a minute and then steps forward and kisses Kjartan on the cheek as a brotherly greeting. Mm. There's a long moment of quiet, but Kjartan returns the greeting and everyone exhales a little. Uh but Kjartan's a little quiet and not super enthusiastic about the situation. But at least it looks like he's going to behave himself. At first. At first. Yeah. A couple days into the visit, Boatley shows off his prize stallion. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Horses again. Yep. Nothing's he's got good. a white horse. It's, it's, like, it's like oranges in a Scorsese film. <laughs> yes, right. He's got a white horse with reddish ears and a reddish blonde mane. And after everyone's had a chance to admire this lovely stallion, Mm -hmm. Boltley tells Kjartan that it's meant as a gift for him, along with a trio of white mares. Yeah, everyone's pretty impressed. get it all. Yeah, I mean, everyone's impressed except Kjartan. (laughs) He just mutters something about not knowing anything about horses and turns away. Ooh, that's cold. Yeah, his father asks him to accept the gift graciously, but he absolutely refuses to accept them. So... We have talked before about how gift culture works. Mm -hmm. It's implicit in the receiving of a gift that you are being encouraged to respond with friendship or loyalty or whatever the situation suggests the price might be. Mm -hmm. 
In this case, the price is probably keeping the peace with Botley and Guthrun over their marriage. It's a reunion of sorts, uh, a right. re- reclamation of their friendship. Right, a sealing of their sort of bond as foster brothers. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, this is this is a showy way of mending fences with Kjartan. But it might also be read as essentially offering compensation for the loss of Gudrun. Oh. Uh, and whatever Botley intends, Kjartan's not interested in playing that game. I'm sorry I stole your woman. Right. Here are some Here's nice some horses. horses. <laughs> Still, I don't know how nice lonely gift. you are right now, but <laughs> at least they're nice horses. I, I have provided you with three white mares. They're quite lovely. Oh, dear. I think you can. Oh, dear. I was going to leave it and... unstated. Oh, as we always, were implying... I can always trust you to, le- to make the subtext text. <laughs> we were implying before, and I just walked right over the line. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Sometimes I can't help yeah. myself. Uh, it seems to me that a gift of four horses, I mean, we've seen that before in this saga, and it caused nothing but trouble. Well, the Hebridean sorcerers yep. did this not long yep. ago. Yeah, I think what's nice about this saga is yep. that it has narrative echoes that run all the way through. It's mm-hmm. uh, one of the most impressive features of yeah. it, I think. And we can't call attention to all of them or we'll never get finished. But if you have a favorite example that we haven't mentioned, let us know about it. You, you can actually go into the episode discussion thread over on the Saga Thing Discord page and let yes. us know what we've missed. Uh, okay. So to ring the changes on this... This time, Kjartan refuses the gift of horses, which exposes that he's still angry about Botley's behavior. Mm-hmm. Which means that accepting a gift of four horses in the saga brings trouble, but so does refusing the gift. So just stop offering each other four packs of horses. Yeah. Right? Or, or, or maybe don't marry someone's foster brother despite them. Sure. I feel like one of those things is the message here. Um, well, in this case, the trouble is that this moment brings other Kjartan back out. Uh, for the rest of the visit, Kjartan is quiet, withdrawn, and sullen. And Olaf is getting worried about the change in Kjartan's behavior. Mm, and Boltley's probably also pretty worried. Well, yeah. Given that he knows about uh, Kjartan's building-burning ways uh, when he's annoyed, he should be. Sure, uh, but I was thinking about Gudrun. <laughs> or Olaf. I mean, Boltley hasn't been making himself a lot of friends, has he? Yeah, no. So, so all right. So, the holidays eventually come to a slightly awkward end, and Kjartan decides to put some distance between himself and the not-so-happy couple. Instead, he visits his friend, Hal Gudmundsson. This is the son of Gudmund the Powerful. Yeah, this saga does love cameos. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hal is the host with the most in the North. He's got a large number of guests spending the summer, including Kjartan's sister Thurid and her husband Gudmund, uh, Kjartan's partner Kalf Asgerson, and Kalf's sister Hrefna. And he's uh, arranged a gathering for sports events. It's not super clear what sort of game they're playing at this event. Let's I'd go, like to know. Let's go with soccer. Why? The World Cup just started. Ah, you meant football. No, no, I didn't, because we're Americans. If I say football, everyone assumes I mean, you know, football. <laughs> yes, but if you say football, football. Then everyone I have to pronounce football. it as football. Foot, football, yes. I think then. It's how, it, it rhymes with football. Um, yeah, it definitely seems like a ball game of some mm-hmm. kind. Uh, it, it involves teams, and the skills are a combination of strength and agility. And you have just described literally any team sport. Yes, but whatever it is, Kjartan's the best, uh-huh. it, as he always is. Mm-hmm. Everyone's impressed. But on the second day, Kjartan decides to sit the game out and just watch everyone else play. But he isn't alone. His sister Thurid is there, and she nudges him. Mm-hmm. 
I've heard that you've been moping about all winter over this loss of Gudrun, and that you and Botley had little to do with each other recently. Well, do the right thing here, and put your malice behind you. Don't begrudge your foster brother for making a good match. I think you'd do well to get yourself married, and, as you suggested last summer, Hrepna is a good match. Mm-hmm. She's not your equal, because no woman in this land is... Her father, Asker, is a worthy man, and you've already told me that Kalf Askerson is a most capable man. Why don't you have a talk with Repna? I think you'll find her as clever as she is good-looking. Yeah, now, uh, Repna, let's remember, is the same woman who essentially turned Carton down ten minutes ago. Ten minutes of this conversation, yes, but it was last summer in Saga time. Yes, okay, fair enough. And he was in a bad mood back then. Uh-huh. He was other Kjartan. She wants him to try again and maybe, you know, try to be pleasant company. Right. I mean, something that we haven't really emphasized a lot so far in the saga is that um, Thurid and uh, Kjartan both are the grandchildren of Ale Scotla Grimson. Right? Yes. Their mother, Thorgard, is uh, Ale's daughter. Uh, and so mm-hmm. it's important to remember that that strain is in their family as well. And, of course, the saga author and the saga audience would not have forgotten that. Uh, yeah, this, it's exactly what I was thinking when he was moping about yeah. at, the, uh, at the party. Yes, exactly, exactly. Strong ale vibes. Yes. And the, the, the so here, I mean, this idea of the woman, I mean, as Thorgrid once did for her father when he was sort of suicidal over the loss of his son, uh, she kind of steps in and redirects his kind of sullen anger toward a more yeah. constructive end. Mm-hmm. Uh, Right. And uh, and in this case, his sister caught him on a good day. Uh, Kjartan admits that she makes good sense, and he goes off to find Hrepna. Uh, they spend the mm-hmm. day together, and by evening, Kjartan's ready to admit that she's, quote, the finest of women in all aspects. So generous. Mm-hmm. Now, this, this is the second love story. Yep, we made it. And Ooh. by the way, their fathers are all over this, uh, so it isn't long before everything's well, settled. Yeah. The wedding bells will ring out at the end of summer. And uh, Kjartan decides he wants to host the wedding at Hjallerhot, which is a little unusual. But since it's really his dad who'll be hosting, everyone agrees. Well, of course they do. Olaf Peacock's the guy who threw a funeral feast for his father and invited all of Iceland. That's right. If anyone knows how to get a big bash together, it's Olaf Peacock. That's right. Uh, but before all the feasting starts, there's an odd little sidebar which I think is meant as evidence that Kjartan is taking this whole conversion to Christianity thing seriously. Mm-hmm. We're told that he fasts for Lent, eating, quote, only dry foods for the entirety of Lent. Only dry foods? That's what it says. Thurt, uh, dry. Uh, it's a classification of foods for fasting in the early church. It's called uh, uh, zirophagy, uh, a type of fasting when the penitent ate only bread and salt with uh, no water until after sundown. Yeah, by the 11th century, though, the rules had been relaxed a bit. Yeah. And herbs, fruits, and other vegetables were permitted as well. Ah, luxury. Herbs and moist veggies. I used to dream of herbs and moist veggies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, probably everyone was uh, choking from all the dry foods getting stuck in their throats. <laughs> They're like, we need to give some something moist to here. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, there's oh, probably... Used a- to- Place in purgatory for middle-aged white guys who uh, quote Monty Python excessively. <laughs> Save me a seat when you get there, John. Yeah. Uh, so, Lent. Well, apparently this dry stuff is a major departure from the damp, moist foods Kjartan usually eats. Which oh, yummy. have to assume is very dairy-based, if I know <laughs> anything about Iceland. 
Uh, now, according to our author, he's the first man in Iceland to fast for Lent. And people are fascinated by this move. Yeah, it actually, and this is so weird, but it actually becomes something of a spectator sport. Uh, people come from miles around to watch him eat. And there's a certain amount of surprise that he hasn't died. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things that it sounds like we're making it up, but that's exactly what the saga says. Yeah, I just imagine sort of bearded bookies taking odds on his uh, chances of surviving another meal of salt and bread. Offering odds on whether he'll eat the herbs with the salt or on the vegetables. It's riveting stuff. But he's not eating herbs and salt and vegetables. We just established that he's not. No, by the 11th century, they've changed this. By the, so we're by, yeah, but we're we're right at the very beginning of the eleventh okay, century. Okay, but it's the 11th, so but it? by the eleventh century. So in other words, by oh, the end of the tenth century. And also, right. you were the one who just said that, so I can't correct you about it right now. <laughs> I literally just encountered that for the first time in my life. So <laughs> you can't. Blame it's a whole me. thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, offering odds on whether he'll eat the herbs with the salts or on the vegetables. That's riveting stuff. You get the distinct Isn't impression it? that people have to make their own fun around Hjallerholt. Well, if you go visit, you'll see why. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you also get the impression that they eat a lot of moist food, right? We said that. Stop saying moist food. It's gross. (laughs) I don't want to say anything too bad about um, medieval Icelandic cuisine, but it seems to be very moist food heavy. (laughs) So, so after everyone's finished watching Kjartan not eat meat for a while, there's a big wedding celebration. Uh, And everyone has a great time. Uh, Asger and Olaf are delighted that their kids are getting married. The guests are impressed with the food and gifts. Hrepna is praised as a stunning bride in her beautiful headdress. And Kjartan is the life of the party. Well, presumably he's resplendent in his scarlet clothery. He does love those red clothes. Yes, he does. We don't get a lot of information about Hrepna. Actually, uh, we never do get the same level of detail about her that we get for the other three in this mess. Well, I mean, who is she? Yeah, I mean, scholars who talk about the well-defined female characters in this saga usually make an exception for Hrepna. We, we just don't get much mm-hmm. about her or about her life to this point. Well, we do get a few moments of activity from her, uh, her passivity is kind of her defining quality. Yeah. Makes for a good wife, those passive ones. Oh, no. No, no. No, no, no. I don't know anything about that because... <laughs> <laughs> that is not who I married. Dear God. But presumably there's hidden depths there because mm-hmm. it's made clear that Kjartan is very happy to be with her. And after the wedding's over, Hrepna and Kjartan, they settle into being happily married. Yeah, and that's actually not sarcasm for once. No, I'm, what I'm trying to say here is they actually like each other. Yeah, it's a good match. It's, it's a rare happy ending. Mm-hmm. If only this were the ending. Part 31. The headdress heist. Hmm. I'm sensing a bit of a theme to the section titles this time. Is there? I hadn't noticed. All right. So this section (laughs) of the saga is just a series of feasts. And Olaf is hosting Mm -hmm. another one near the beginning of the winter. As is his custom, he invites Olsvif and the entire clan to come to his farm at Hjardaholt. Which means Guthrun and Botli are along for the trip as well. Hmm. This See, this is the problem with the limited social scene of a rural area. Yep. All it takes is one guy lying about another guy breaking off an engagement with a woman to spend time with a Norwegian princess, 
and suddenly there are all these awkward social situations. Yeah, well, you know, we, we've all been there. Well, fortunately, all that's required is that uh, everyone behave like adults and everything will be fine. Well, they're doomed. Oh, absolutely. It's been foretold. So <laughs> once everyone's arrived, the women from the various groups of guests begin sorting out the thorny issue of seating arrangements. Both Guthrun and Hrefna are in the group. And they happen to pass by where Kjartan is pulling on yet another of his red shirts. And he calls over to them. See to it that Hrefna has the seat of honor. As long as I'm alive, Hrefna will have that seat and will be treated in every way with the highest respect. Yeah, and uh, deep in Gudrun's eyes, a furious flame begins to flicker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's not forget uh, Gudrun's behavior with previous rivals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is this is definitely a woman whose uh, who's bad side you'd rather not visit. Yeah. Now, are, are we going to talk at some point about Kjartan wearing red shirts all the time? I mean, we, we referenced earlier, you mean he's a flashy dresser or that he's going to die? Mm, yes. I'm sure we will. Uh, but for now, let's talk about how Kjartan just indirectly embarrassed Gudrun. Well, I mean, that's a pretty clear slight against her, I think. Uh, the narrator explains that she is accustomed to being given the seat of honor at Holt whenever she visits. Well, sure, but that's when everyone thought she was going to end up married exactly. to, the, yeah. to the heir to the farm, right? I mean... There's a new sheriff in town now, and she has a fancy headdress from a Norwegian es- princess. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Uh, Hrefna having the highest seat isn't really that shocking. Uh, but Kjartan making it his business to identify Hrepna as the higher status of the two women, that's a slap at Gudrun. And Gudrun doesn't like being publicly snubbed. No. Uh, in many ways, Gudrun and Kjartan are alike. Mm-hmm. Right? We've been talking about other Kjartan. Well, there's an other Gudrun, too. Yeah. Uh, but Gudrun's not as obvious as Kjartan, so almost no one knows when she's truly angry. But Kjartan knows her better than most people, which in this case just means he knows exactly what's most likely to infuriate her. Mm -hmm. But again, I've got to stick up for Hrepna here. It's really not outlandish to say that she should have the high seat at her own home. Oh, no. It it might be politic to offer the seat to a distinguished visitor, but to give up your seat to your husband's ex, that's asking a lot. No. Agreed. No. The problem here is less who's sitting where than that Kjartan stuck his nose in where the women were deciding these things themselves. And especially when Gudrun was probably expecting to be able to strong-arm Hrepna, who, as we said, is a bit of a passive personality. Mm -hmm. But now, no one dares to go against Kjartan's word. Well, no one except Gudrun. Well, except Gudrun, yeah. And even she doesn't do it directly. Well, Gudrun isn't all... Gudrun doesn't really act directly. No. She's good with the indirectly. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, other Gudrun has some plans here. Yes. The following day, Gudrun asks Hrepna to wear her famous headdress so that everyone can see this lovely treasure. Kjartan steps in and says that she's not going to wear it just to provide a momentary diversion for her guests. Uh, But later in the week, Gudrun gets Hrepna to take her to the shed where the headdress is stored. She looks at it for a long time, saying nothing, until Hrepna takes it back and puts it in its chest. Right, having to tug slightly to get it out of Gudrun's hands. It's got to be an uncomfortable silence. Yeah, I, I think this is honestly where sagas do their best work. In the silences. Yeah. We we don't know exactly what Gudrun is thinking in this moment, but we know there's a maelstrom going on inside her. Mm-hmm. But is she grieving the loss of Kjartan? 
Is she furious at being snubbed and lied to? Is she fuming at this evidence of Kjartan's relationship with Ingebjörg? Is she choking back bile of feeling thwarted and mistreated? Feeling jealous of this really awesome headdress that came from a Norwegian yep. princess that, that could have been, have been hers? Yep. Yeah. All yep. of the above, I think. Right, right. People are complex, yeah. Uh, we don't have just one emotion, one thought. Uh, it's As modern readers, we accept the artifice of internal monologues in fiction, right? The, the idea that our thoughts are coherent, linear, and grammatically complete sentences, because that's mm. the way internal monologues work in modern stories. But that's not how your brain actually works, right? Your brain's a mess, frankly. Uh, oh, not thanks. just you, Andy. Everyone's brain is a mess. Oh, I thought um, you were talking to me. We, we think in like images and half-thought things and sensory inputs and all these things. The best saga authors know when to show us that we're not inside the characters' heads. Mm-hmm. But there's a world of unsaid feelings swirling inside of them. Yeah. We watch them and imagine their thoughts in ways that are more realistically human than what a writer can put into words. Right. A writer who knows what not to say. Mm -hmm. Sagas are so great. (laughs) They are. So nothing else happens until the next day when the party is actually breaking up. It's snowing out as everyone is packing their horses for the trips home. And as he helps his father say the goodbyes, Kjartan realizes that he's not wearing King's gift. Right, the sword he got from King Olaf. Yeah, and when he goes back inside to get it, it's not where he left it. Right, this is a big deal for a few reasons. Uh, remember, the king prophesied that uh, Kjartan wouldn't be killed while he was wearing the sword. Not knowing where it is, mm-hmm. we're kind of in Linus with his security blanket territory here. Yeah, well, Kjartan's a grown man. Well, yes, and that's why he has a security sword. Well, not anymore, he doesn't. Yeah. He immediately tells his father that it's been stolen. And Can we can we classify this under true crime? Podcasts get more attention if they stick true true crime in their keywords. Okay, true crime. Yes. This is a true crime story. Yeah. It definitely happened. Sure it did. Uh, But (laughs) maybe not because this is a saga. Yeah. Um, and we haven't even established whether there, there's been a crime yet. Is is it really true stolen? crime? Okay. So Kjartan tells his father about the sword and Olaf urges him to keep quiet about it. And he'll send guides with each group to spy on them. Yeah, guides. it's amazing, by the way. Kjartan knows right away that the sword is actually gone and that he didn't just misplace it. Mm-hmm. And that's either a literary device or a sign of Kjartan's youth. Oh. Personally, Andy... I've been known to look for the glasses that I'm wearing while I'm looking for them. <laughs> that might be a problem. Yeah, well, old age is a funny thing, Steve. Uh, my name's Andy. That's what I said. So, Olaf had a plan? Uh, yes, yes. He sends his servants on the White, on the Black, and Bainir the Strong with different groups. And as it happens, on the White travels with Oldsweef's group, and when they stop at a farm to rest... Aun sees Thorolf Olsvifsson and a few other men wander off into some bushes. And they walk right past an outhouse. So <laughs> it's clearly not that. It doesn't say that. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Uh, just trying to head off the person listening who was coming up with a pee joke. Uh, you know who you are. <laughs> so Aun is pretty sure Thorolf has the sword. Um, yes, he makes an excuse to head back home, which no one else is all that interested in. Why were you here in the first place? Yeah, and Thorolf actually says, 
It wouldn't have been much harm if you hadn't come along at all. That's rude, rude, Thorolf. <laughs> but so not untrue. Once he's out of their sight, Alan retraces Thorolf's steps in the fresh fallen snow. And then he finds the sword because, yes, Thorolf stole it. True crime. It is true crime. I guess we're a true crime podcast now. See? Get, get it in the keywords. Oh, well, there you go. So long, <laughs> history. We're true crime now where the money is. We're true is. crime now. We don't bearded men stealing things from other bearded men. It's a surefire seller. <laughs> now, Owen wants to get his proof in order. So he gets to a local farmer and asks him to witness the sword's location before retrieving it and bringing it back to Kjartan. They take good measurement of all the footprints, making sure that they've yeah. got impressions now, an odd detail of all this is that the sword is recovered, but the scabbard never is. It's it's just gone. It's in Thorolf's saddlebag. It's a mystery lost to time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's there. It's right there. Anyway, so even though King's Gift has been recovered, Kjartan puts the sword in a chest. And from that point on, he values it much less highly than before. He seems to regard the sword as sullied by the theft. So he's no longer wearing the sword. No. The sword that was prophesied to protect him from harm. That's right. Doesn't want to. Not a great decision, really. Well, I mean, if it helps any, he's not happy about the whole situation. He he wants to ride out to Laugar and kick some Olsvifsen ass, but Olaf the peace-loving peacock convinces him to let it go (laughs) for the sake of peace with friends and kinsmen. Yeah, uh, Olaf really doesn't seem to understand how volatile this situation is getting. Uh, or maybe he does. Well, uh, but it becomes even more obvious a few weeks later, uh, because Olaf convinces Kjartan to come with him to another feast at Lauger hosted by Osvif. No! I, I know, this this section is all just feasts. Kjartan is reluctant, but he finally agrees, and he asks Hrepna to come too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hrepna, who's not a complete fool... Plans to leave the headdress at home. Uh, yeah, because you don't want to carry cheese into a rat's nest. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and that uh, that headdress is some high-quality cheese. The finest Norwegian cheese. Uh, the best cheese. Uh, but Thorgert Ale's daughter, uh, Carton's mom, convinces her that there's no point in owning the thing if she doesn't wear it to feasts once in a while. Uh, fair uh, point. Which is a fair point. Carton uh, says nothing since his mom wants it. Well, we can probably guess where this is going. Yeah, I think we said this part of the saga operates like clockwork. Well, tick, tick. So when they arrive, the guests at Lauger turn their luggage over to Ozif's servants to be put away. And here it comes. In the morning, when she's going through their things, Hrepna can't find the headdress. What? Can you imagine? She mentions the loss to Gudrun, but Gudrun dismisses it. She says that Hrepna must have either forgotten to bring it, or been careless and dropped it on the way there, which... Sure. I mean, sure. Obviously, Hrepna knows better. And the fact that Gudrun has multiple excuses ready to go for what happened to the headdress, <laughs> well, not suspicious at all. True crime. True crime. Uh, so Hrepna is sure she didn't lose the thing, and she mm-hmm. tells Kjartan what happened. Uh, Kjartan is furious, but once more, for some reason, he goes to his father first. And Olaf once more advises him to keep it quiet and let him, Olaf, try to resolve things. Olaf says, Let me see what may be done privately. And let us prevent a split between you and Botli. 
Least said, soonest mended. You know how it is, brother. Son? I know... Son. <laughs> uh, I know you want to do well by everyone, father, but I'm not sure I'm prepared to let the people of Lauger ride roughshod over me. Yeah. Other Kjartan is starting to perk up and reach for the uh-huh. mattress. I'd like to burn them, father. Burn <laughs> them all. Burn them all in their I'm, homes with I mean, their he, children. He, <laughs> I want to toast marshmallows in the flames of their deaths. Uh, no, he he did promise to give his father time to try it his way, but but this time nothing comes of it. Olaf's not able to work out any way to get the headdress back without accusing someone of taking it. Man, why is Olaf just letting? I understand he wants to keep the peace, but at some mm-hmm. point your your honor is. Uh, Gonna I mean, evaporate. Yeah. It's, this isn't how Vikings work, man. It's how Olaf works. <laughs> well, they don't have to transport it anywhere this time. No, so so wait, so that means you think someone stole it too. I've read this saga, John. Fair. Uh so at the end of the visit, as they're packing to leave, Kjartan can't keep quiet any longer. He confronts Botley as they're getting ready to go. I want to warn you, Botley, my kinsman. To treat me and mine more honorably than you have to now. I won't keep silent, because everyone already knows about the things that have disappeared, which we suspect will have found their way into your possession. Last time I saw you, my sword was stolen. We got it back, but without the sheath. Now once more property has been stolen that could be described as valuable, and I want boat items back. John. Yep. I've just made a little connection in my mind. Does this have anything to do with the scabbards and swords? Because Yes, it does. Yeah, that's where I was going. (laughs) Scabbards and swords. Yeah. The scabbard's missing. Yep. The scabbard is the thing you put your sword in. Yep. And Guthrin was stolen from him. Yep. The headdress. Yep. Is something a lady wears. Mm Mm-hmm. It's intended for his would-be wife. Yep. Who was supposed to be Guthrin. Yep. And it is now stolen from him. Yep. So essentially, yeah, what's been stolen from him is the place where he should stick his sword and the headdress that should go on the woman <laughs> who is holding the scabbard. Very yeah, cool. it's a uh, subtle is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. That we both caught that at the same moment. <laughs> it's very interesting. Oh, hmm. dear. Dirty, some, dirty saga some writers. dirty dealings in Lockstaller Saga. Yes, there are. Well, you know, I got to credit Boltley for being creative in his thefts. <laughs> you know, he's like, it's all a metaphor. Do you get it? You see? Do you get it? <laughs> see what I did? I pulled it's, it off. This is really more of an art installation than a series of thefts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, going back to the, the story, we have seen Speaking this. Speaking of which, Andy, do you know what the Latin for a scabbard is? <laughs> Vagina? Yeah, it is. <laughs> well. Yep. Yeah, I feel like this is a. Uh, it's not lost on our author. No, definitely not. Now, John, uh, in terms of the story, we have seen things like this before. Yeah, it's not that Kjartan thinks Botley has personally taken the headdress. It's in the best interest of the host to root out any thieves in his midst, especially if they're members of his own house. Yeah, but that assumes that he doesn't know about the thefts personally, right? In Falls Brothers Saga, the host didn't actually know why the thefts had happened. He was the one making the accusations. Uh, Kjartan yeah. is basically saying, you know you did it. 
I know you did it. And you know I know you did it. So cough it up before your nice but very dry house has a little accident with a torch and several matches. <laughs> he's he's basically saying that, but the saga doesn't say that. Right, no, the saga doesn't say it literally, but yeah, this is no. clearly the subtext. Now, Botley is shocked, either honestly or convincingly. Mm-hmm. We're not guilty of either of the accusations that you've made. And I'd never expected that you would accuse me of stealing. Well, you're going out of your way to insult us. And I've ignored your enmity for far too long. From now on, I'm warning you. I intend to tolerate it no longer. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I don't know how you feel, John. I don't think this is on Boatley, buddy. I don't think it. I don't think Boatley has anything to do with this. I don't think so either. I think that because only because uh, it's Gudrun's brother who yeah. is stashing things and hiding things uh, that this seems to be happening. This is between Carton and uh, Gudrun. Yeah. Right. The problem is that Baltley has inserted himself into that relationship, and so he's stuck dealing with the fallout of their breakup. Yeah, he's dealing with the repercussions of marrying yeah. a woman who has in the past done some shady dealings that are extremely well, dishonest. But we've talked before about this problem that when uh, if that women have in some ways freedom to act that men don't. Because it's their husbands, their fathers, their brothers who will have to answer for it legally. Yeah. Right. Carton is essentially accusing Botley of theft because accusing Goodman of theft wouldn't do any good. Fair enough. Yeah. Right. And, and honestly, it's, it's her husband who's going to have to answer for what she's done. Right. And Carton's problem isn't really with Goodman. It's with Botley for stealing Goodman. Fair enough. Yeah. That's a good his, point. Yeah. It's, his these minor thefts headdress wear. are all just echoes of a larger theft. Yeah. Absolutely. So now we can get him for that, or he's hoping yep. to. Or he's yep. at least saying, just admit what you did and say sorry. Right. That's all I ever wanted. <laughs> I'm happy. No one ever says sorry in the sagas. Yeah. Well, I, that, while, that'd, be a good, that'd be a good project sometime. Is there a single apology anywhere in the sagas? <laughs> someone must have. In, in all the sagas. Does anyone ever so far, say, I'm sorry, that was wrong of me? <laughs> well, well, at the end of Njal's saga, don't we get, don't we get two people? Um, That's a reconciliation. Who, yeah. That's merely a test of the honorable nature of Flossi. It's it's never st- nobody ever apologizes. He right. just shows up. Say, yeah, right. Kari shows up, shows up says, the door. Yeah, but there's no but apology. It's just uh, let's yeah. put this behind us. It's just hey, we're the only two left alive. <laughs> how do how do you feel about me coming in and having a drink? <laughs> I mean, that's a sorry without saying sorry. I mean, it's a great end of the saga, honestly. But yeah, it it's, is. yeah, no, there's no there's no real apology there. Well, while the two men are talking, Gotherin steps over to them and says, Look at you, stirring up embers that should be allowed to go out. Don't mention embers in front of other Kjartan. <laughs> <laughs> and besides, if someone here did involve themselves in stealing the headdress, in my opinion, they've done nothing but take what is rightfully theirs. Believe what you want about it. I, for one, won't shed too many tears if Prepna has to go about with less ornamentation than before. Okay, so, I mean, she oh, just... this con- woman. She just oh. confessed. <laughs> Come on, sort she of, yeah. She just confessed. She's still got a bit of plausible deniability here, but basically, yes. She just <laughs> dared Kjartan to do anything about it. Come right. on, I mean, man. I, these two are starting to give off some serious who's afraid of Virginia Woolf vibes. For real. 
<laughs> well, well, I mean, that play ends happily, right? Everyone's smiling. <laughs> yeah, hmm. well, something like that, yeah. Okay, John. Yeah. Are we okay with Guthrie just admitting to theft? <laughs> Not that anyone consulted us, but are we okay no. with that? Uh, also, she didn't technically confess. I... But, I mean, this whole theft thing is a new wrinkle in this saga. Yeah. Although, I should say, not in this clan. Remember that Botley and Kjartan's grandfather, Hoskold, had several children with his wife, in addition to the bastard Irish prince, Kjartan. Eh, so what? I that, mean, it's significant a... here. Ah, yes. And one of those kids is Holgerth Longlegs, a.k.a. Holgerth Thiefsize. Exactly. Her uncle Hrut gave her that name when he saw her playing with other children, and he said to Hoskold, I'm not sure how Thiefsize entered our family. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is something to think about, right? Both Njal Saga and Lokstala Saga, two of the most sweeping epics of Icelandic literature, both of them feature a proud woman who resorts to theft. Uh, one as a way to maintain public honor, the other as a way to avenge a perceived insult to her honor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which we can read that as misogyny, right? Yeah, I think it's not just misogyny, though. I mean, it is misogyny, absolutely. But it's also another example of how saga women have to be more more creative than men in defending their honor. Yeah. Right? Men generally, generally resort to either violence or generosity. Or proving themselves to be wise arbiters of justice, but sure. Yeah, which which usually comes off as a kind of generosity, but sure. But But I see what you mean. Women usually don't have access to the financial levers of generosity and generally aren't able to commit violent acts directly themselves. They have mm-hmm. to find other ways to fight for their space and honor. Not all of them can be breaches out, John. Exactly. Uh, and theft is hardly the only way, right? Uh, they shame relatives into acting on their behalf. They, they use magic. They make alliances. Uh, they, they influence their children. Uh, think about Bergthor and Njal Saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, they run households well or ruthlessly. They conscript servants to do their bidding, etc., etc. Right? They they got all these different ideas. Well, they have to get creative. Mm-hmm. Stealing the headdress as a kind of vandalism against this marriage fits into a whole array of options that is available to a female in the sagas or sure, in the saga of age. Course. Of course, uh, of course, we could also say that Gudrun helped create this marriage by refusing to wait for Kjartan and then marrying Botley. Well. But in both of those cases, she was hemmed in by male action. Yeah. Right. Kjartan refusing to take her to Norway, and then her father and Botley arranging a marriage. We're going to have a lot to say about Gudrun when we finally get to reviewing this saga or oh, summonsing her. Yes. Uh, for now, Gudrun has called Kjartan's bluff with one of her own, and he's forced to turn and leave. Or, again, he could burn the place down. He, <laughs> he likes that sort of thing. Yeah, but not right this second. Uh, but this marks a final break between the two houses. Oswif and Olaf may still feel warmly toward each other, but their kids are increasingly overtly at war. And things are going to keep escalating from here. But for now, all that happens is that the two sides cut off all friendly contact and keep apart for the next few weeks. Until after Christmas, which is now a thing in Iceland. Christmas, everyone! Yay! Uh, well, it's not just because of the thefts. Shortly after this visit, word comes that Hrefna's father, Asgir Scatterbrain, has died. Her brothers, including Kalf, uh, take control of Asgir's farm and wealth, but Hrefna and Kjartan are distracted for a few weeks while they mourn. And while everyone regroups, we should probably stop here. 
We keep saying we need to make these episodes shorter, and this is yet another failed attempt. Yeah, yeah. No, but wait a second. We can't forget one more important piece of information that we do get about the fate of the headdress. Well, it's more of a rumor, really. Okay, but it's an official kind of rumor. Okay. This section ends with the quote-unquote rumor that Guthrin gave the headdress to Thorolf, her brother, and had him burn it. Yeah, well, that's not certain. It's, It's pretty certain. Well, I mean, what we can definitively say is that nothing more is ever seen of the headdress. It's just gone. Yeah, Thorolf burned it. There's rumors, mere gossip. Yeah, well-founded, almost certainly factual gossip. And this all adds another layer to Guthrun's character. Mm-hmm. When she feels hurt, she'll go rather far to avenge it, even if it costs her a great deal. Right. Pyrrhic victories are still victories, right? Uh, to Pyrrhus, they are, yes. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's where we'll leave it. At the okay. moment when Kjartan starts hearing reports of the destruction of the headdress, and when everyone else waits to see how he'll react. All right. So before we can wrap this up, are you uh, planning to summon someone this episode, Mr. Let's Keep These Episodes Shorter? Well, sort of. The evidence before the court. Krippa's headdress. Hmm. This is this is where we've we've ended up. This is what we're doing. We are entering a piece of evidence into the court record. Right. The strain of this premise is really starting to show. But I let's go for it. Let's go. It's gonna be fun. We're going to have a great time. This is legitimate. This section of the saga is partly defined by the giving and taking of this headdress. As your title showed. I don't know what you mean. We began with it being given as a gift, (laughs) supposedly for Guthrun. Then Krepna Uh wore it briefly. Kjartan eventually gave it to her as a kind of betrothal gift. It was worn at their wedding. The headdress then becomes intolerable to Guthrun as a symbol of the collapse of her and Kjartan's relationship. And eventually... She steals it and has it destroyed. Allegedly has it destroyed. Stop. This this whole part of the saga can be understood through the movements and symbolism of this headdress. Mm-hmm. And given that we're rapidly picking up speed toward a tragic end, an item so central to the rising tensions is absolutely relevant. All right. Well, I, I don't have a problem with spending time on this, even if it is a ridiculous abuse of the summons premise that you came up with, but... So generous. So... Where do you want to start? With the headdress itself or with the gift? Uh, let's start with the headdress. Okay. Uh, it's described, I mean, actually, it's never really described in very much detail. It's no. just supposed to be really impressive. Uh, let's see. In chapter 43, I, I made notes for this. Uh, in chapter 43, we get, Ingeborg reached for a nearby casket from which she took a white headdress embroidered with golden threads. There was a covering of fine fabric about the headdress. The gift was a great treasure. In chapter 45, we're told, according to reliable reports, there were eight ounces of gold woven into the headdress. Mm. And that's it. That's all we get as far as physical descriptions. Okay. So from context clues, we can infer that it would have been made from like very fine linen or possibly from silk, right? Yeah, I incline toward the silk idea. Uh-huh. Uh, the amount of admiration people supposedly have for this and the fact that it's unlike any other headdress in Iceland... I think suggests that. What do you think? Yeah. Um, I feel like I don't have an opinion. I just don't. 
I, I, <laughs> I, I legitimately have no idea what this would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but another a, a number of people have argued this point, though. And since the saga never gets into specifics of the fabric, we're simply left to guess or to let it let it be. But let's go with never. your choice. Let's go with your choice. Let's assume it's silk. Mm-hmm. It certainly could be silk, right? Silk is available in medieval Norway. Am I mistaken? Oh, definitely. Uh, as of 2015, uh, Marianne Vedler had counted 23 separate archaeological sites that had silk finds uh, right. dating to the 9th and 10th centuries. Okay. And just one of those sites at Osberg in South Norway, there are over 100 samples of silk there from different fabrics at a single grave site. Well, that's a lot of silks, so we're good. Yeah, and most of the sites where we find silks are burial sites, which isn't surprising, right? You you dress people in their best when they die. Uh, but silk was certainly not reserved for burial clothes. No. Uh, no, we know silk was available commercially, and there was even silk production as far west as Byzantium. And there's more and more work showing just how robust the trading routes with India and the Far East really were at that time. Right, and of course, anytime we talk about things that are available in Byzantium... We have to assume that the Varangians and the Rus are bringing those things north with them. Uh, I came across a couple of really interesting accounts of silk production in Constantinople while I was researching, by the way. I'd like to see those when you get a chance, if that's... Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, I mean, we'll put all this up on the site. Will I mean, we? You'll, you will put up all this on the site. Will I? Yeah, I assume well, that's what you, you mean. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, it really is pretty interesting. Uh, Constantinople had full-on silk factories by the 9th or 10th century, which I didn't know. Uh, they were called gynecea because the workers were all women. Hmm. Uh, they were mostly unfree women who could be trusted with the secrets of silk production because they were legally unable to leave their jobs without permission. Well, that sounds a lot like sweatshop labor there, John. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. People are persistently and depressingly people, no matter what era we're talking about. Well, let's get back to the subject of this headdress. Mm-hmm. So... You're going to proceed from the assumption that it's silk or a similar fabric. Yeah. So an argument has been made by a number of people that medieval clothing was inherently functional and practical. Well, there's a book from 1973. I know. I know. (laughs) There's this book that argues, and I quote, the function of clothing from the unsettled centuries of early Europe was a practical one. Fashion as we know it did not exist. Okay. Here's what I'm thinking about this book from 1973. Uh-huh. It is written by someone who doesn't know much about the medieval world. Correct. <laughs> because we know there were fashions in clothing, and there were always adornments and ornaments. As you said, people are people, and they want to look cool. And this headdress yeah. looks cool. It is not simply a piece of silk you throw over the top of your head. Right, right. But this is, of course, for a special occasion, right? But even in everyday clothing, that's just not how it works. No. Uh, Anita Sokol has an appropriately dry response to this kind of reasoning in one of her chapters. Uh, this does not accord with the medievalists' understanding of perceptions of clothing in the far north in the past. Well, exactly. Yes, Anita Sokol, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, now let's juxtapose that with a recent report on the archaeological finds at Borgen in western Norway. Okay. Uh, Gita Hansen has quoted has been quoted as saying that individual garments in Borgen have as many as eight different fabrics in their making. Eight. Think about how many clothes you have with more than, say, two. (laughs) And those are more everyday clothes, right? Mm -hmm. For something like a wedding gift or an adornment, a headdress 
might get pretty darn fancy. John, do you know about the uh, Norway's bridal crowns? I, I know they exist. That's it. Yeah. So these are headpieces that were in fashion by the end of the Middle Ages. It, it's kind of what I'm thinking of when I think about this particular headdress. Probably mm-hmm. not an accurate thing because the timing doesn't necessarily add up, but that's what I'm thinking of. It's a symbolic thing, referencing purity and virginity and so on. They're richly decorated things made with precious metals like silver, for example. And they could be big and heavy enough that they had to be threaded into the bride's hair so they wouldn't fall off. Huh. They're also really expensive because they got well, silver. Sure, silver, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that meant that they were a luxury most families can't afford. They're to show off how wealthy you are, right? Mm-hmm. So people just rented them rather than owning one. And in a lot of towns, the church had one that people could use for the day. So it's sitting there. <laughs> like a communal one. Yeah. yeah. You want you can use the church as one? You filthy sure. peasant. Anyway. <laughs> what? <laughs> Jesus. But it, anyway, it's, it's still a thing, although it's not universal anymore, but it's still a thing. All right. This is all very interesting. And I do feel a saga brief about textiles and no, clothing you don't. coming up. No, you don't. Uh, I don't. do, I do. It's it's right there on the horizon. You know who uh, doesn't riding, know anything about It's riding with subjects? Sancho Panza by its side. Yes, that's uh, that is correct. But uh, 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 but now who's getting off topic, Andy? Well, I, we're just making a point, and you're the one that brought up what does it look like and all this stuff about fabrics <laughs> and whatever. You did that, not me. I and I, I'm just now you got me in, intrigued. <laughs> so it's not bicker and argue about who discussed what textile, <laughs> right? But uh, yeah. Silk brocaded headdresses with gold thread. It's something else. Check it out. Yeah, I mean, what we can say is that something like this would be a rarity in Iceland, right? Just because oh, of the relative scarcity of resources. Mm-hmm. When a when a fancy cloak or a silk shirt or or a fine headdress, when one of these appears in the sagas, it's almost always coming from overseas, mm-hmm. and usually it's a gift from a Norwegian. Well, let's not forget the uh, the, the fine bedclothes in Erbiga Saga. That- let's not. Set off so many, so many, also brought brought from overseas, brought from the Hebrides. That's right. Yeah. So, in this way, I think Krefna's headdress and Kjartan's red clothes, even the fur cloak King Olaf gives to Kjartan, even the sword, to be honest, they're all representatives Mm -hmm. of the same thing. They're all ways of showcasing Norwegian wealth and sophistication. Uh huh. And Norwegians giving fancy clothes and weapons to Icelanders ends up looking patronizing mm-hmm. in, in all the senses of that word. I think it's a great choice of word. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's a pretty good transition into the significance of the headdress as a gift. We hinted at this earlier, but it's possible to read a whole lot of sociopolitical significance into this headdress. It's a status symbol and one that emphasizes the unequal relationship between Norway and Iceland. Yes. Again, it, it matches up with the fur cloak that Kjartan accepted from King Olaf. That also served as a status symbol gift. It signaled a change in the dynamic between the two of them. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why Kjartan's friends didn't like that he accepted the cloak. Right. Gift-giving culture, something we talked about before. It's understood that gifts are a sort of informal contract. Mm-hmm. A relationship is being established. A sense of mutual obligation, even. Yes. And it's usually either the host or the higher status individual who's dispensing the gift and seeking obligation from the person receiving the gift. Right. I mean, not always, right? We do see gifts given laterally by those seeking support or help. 
But as a general rule, yes. Yeah. So there's a hook in this gift mm-hmm. and possibly an implicit claim to a higher status by Ingebjorg. Exactly. She has the power to give this. Right. I mean, well, I mean, she is the king's sister, so I guess it's already implied that she's of higher status. Mm-hmm. But Icelanders, as a general statement, they were concerned about being thought of as lowborn or ignoble by others, and especially by Norwegians. Mm-hmm. And Norwegians were often willing to score points by reminding Icelanders of their humble circumstances. Yeah. So when Ingeborg gives this headdress to Kjartan as a kind of bridal wedding gift, it's both an ostentatious display of wealth and a way of reminding all Icelanders, how does she put it? Mm. Well, she wants to remind Kjartan's Icelandic wife that she, Ingeborg, is, quote, not descended from slaves. Yeah. But we can extrapolate from that a sneer at all of Iceland. Norwegians mm-hmm. are not descended from slaves because their worst elements all ended up in Iceland. <laughs> I like that way of thinking about it. It's kind of the, mm-hmm. the Britain and Australia thing. Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, so this is a packed moment, uh, much more so than it first appears. Uh, Anne-Marie Long has an excellent book about this broader sociopolitical context. It's called uh, Iceland's Relationship with Norway, circa 870 to 1100, which I recognize is not the most attention-grabbing title, but she looks at this subject in interesting ways. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, if I see that title, that excites me. But I'm a... Well, I know, but you and I are uh, a very special subset of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's a book that's written at us. It's We're the target audience yeah. for that. Yes. Book. Yes. But, what uh, I'm saying is people who aren't necessarily immediately inflamed by that title should give it a try. It's got some really interesting stuff in it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, is she So what is she looking at? Material culture? What? Exactly, yeah. Uh, Long argues for a threefold meaning here. Uh, Ingebjörg mm. is acknowledging that despite her wealth and status, Kjartan hasn't chosen her, which is a point for Icelanders. But she's also showing that items of true culture and treasure are Norway's, not Iceland's, to give. Yeah, because Norway's markets and population meant a wider and deeper economy. And that economy included pricey items like ornate glassware jewelry, and also fine linens and silks. It's not just about lumber, people. It's about fine things. That's right. Uh, Score one for Norway. Mm -hmm. Third, it's a personal shot at the lesser-born status of the Icelandic woman that Kjartan has chosen for his love. Norway wins on points. Actually, hang on. I think we can add at least two more layers of meaning here. I like that. Uh, Let's go. First, Ingebjörg feels snubbed, right, rightly or wrongly. She wants to reassert her worth after Kjartan has refused to stay and be with her. Right, so in this case, i.e. by demonstrating a bit of what he's losing financially by not staying with her. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. In other words, because she can afford to give away gifts finer than anything Icelanders have ever seen or yep. will ever see. Yeah. So that's three to one for Norway now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, and we talked about this earlier, but this whole scene has similarities to that Gunild Hrut sequence in Njalsaga. I would argue that this headdress has proven to be at least as effective of a way of wrecking Kjartan's love life and marriage and happiness, uh, at least as effective as that penile gigantism curse that uh, Gunnild inflicted on Hrut. Yeah, I mean, I, that's exactly what I was thinking when we kind of indicated this connection before, but mm-hmm. we didn't want to spoil it then. Right. But yes, exactly. And that would be a fourth and final point for Norway. Yeah, this actually ended up being pretty one-sided. <laughs> Poor Iceland. Uh, Well, she only appears in the saga on this one brief occasion, but there's a reason that Robert Kellogg lists Ingeborg 
among the most impressive and powerful women of this saga. Yeah, she makes her moment count. She literally has one line, and she mm-hmm. makes it makes it count. But it's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Now, if we accept this idea that the gift is a deliberate attempt to disrupt Kjartan's future, then she also changes the entire trajectory of all three of our protagonists' lives with a single, well-timed gift. And she doesn't have to work blue like the Njal Saga author. That's right. Pretty impressive. Okay. The headdress is entered into the court role. I'm not sure what exactly we said about it that was of value, but some interesting things. <laughs> you always say that. Uh, all right. And it's always true. Are we ready to retire for the evening? I think so. Um, yeah. John and I, because of all this, if, if you want to call them summonses, these because of these things we tack on to the end of the episodes, <laughs> we haven't been doing the, um, the rune sack lately uh, because oh, yeah. the episodes are simply just too long to, to do yeah. that. But uh, we were just talking before this episode about maybe doing a special episode on just mm-hmm. rune sack questions. So if you're feeling up to it and you want to send us a rune sack question, we do have a pile, but some of them we can answer rather quickly. So feel free yeah. to send us some new things. Yeah, get him in because I think sometime around uh, what is for us the Christmas break, right? We we are both teachers, so we get a little bit of time off in December and January. Yeah. And I think we can take a little bit of time during that to maybe uh, sit down and do an episode where we just answer your questions. Yeah. So if you got questions, now's the time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, look for that episode in January. So if you get those questions to us by Christmas time, we should be able to yeah. rustle up some answers for you. Um, that'll be great. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's retire for the evening. Mm-hmm. We're going to be back soon to pick up the story of Kjartan and Botley and Gudrun and the uh, the building feud that is on a direct line to tragedy. Now, it's not a secret how this is all going to play out because we've had a lot of prophecies about it. Yes. But how we get there and what happens afterward makes for fantastic reading. Yes, that's kind of how fate and prophecy work in literature. Mm-hmm. We will be back soon with all of that. But in the meantime, let us know what you're thinking about the saga so far is... Kjartan's anger justified? Is Gudrun's anger justified? Is Botley's slightly less overt anger justified? That's a lot of anger. That's where we are. A lot of anger. Yeah. And uh, where do they go to pontificate about said justifiable anger? Well, if they want to write to us about the anger or maybe send us one of those RuneSack questions, right. you can reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram where we are Saga Thing Podcast. Assuming the dumpster fire has not completely consumed it by the time we post this, you can also find us on Twitter where we are at Saga Thing Pod. <laughs> or email us at SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com or join us on the unofficially official Discord page for Saga Thing, where the mead flows like water and the conversation flows like Well, water going in a lot of different directions. Right. Could be wine? Sure, like wine, like mead, but water for those of you who prefer to be sober. And uh, while you're there, tell us, uh, if you celebrate a holiday around this time of year, what saga-appropriate gift are you hoping for this holiday season? Maybe a graphic novel of Arabic saga. Hmm? Could be. Could be. Uh, If you're not celebrating anything, you can still ask for a present. Yeah, and then uh, once you've asked for a present, you know, type it into your computer, leave the browser open to that page, and uh, leave it for a loved one to find. Yeah. Maybe you'll get lucky. All right. Well, that's going to do it for now. We'll be back soon, and in the meantime, thanks for listening. Bye for now.
maybe a graphic novel of Arabic Saga. Hmm? Could be. Could be. Uh, if you're not celebrating anything, you can still ask for a present. Yes. Uh, type in the present that you want to your computer, then leave the browser open to that page and leave it for a loved one to find. Oh. Maybe you'll get lucky. <laughs> what if you're an incel just sitting there by yourself, though? Who's going to find it, John? I mean, do you love yourself? <laughs> you, you come up. You maybe, come up you, maybe you can scrape up a little money and uh, spend a little money on that. There you go. All right. Well, that is going to do In it between for now. practicing self-love. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to bring this to an end. That's going to do it so, for now, so, everyone. So is the incel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody.